It's all right. Good morning, guys. How's everybody doing? I hope everybody's having a good day or good morning even and had a good Easter weekend. Um, get the boring stuff out of the way first. It's 8 degrees in Amsterdam, 13 degrees in Paris, 9 degrees in Brussels, 8 degrees in London and 18 degrees in Bucharest. It was a very nice weekend where everybody got to enjoy some sunlight from their prisons inside. And we got some good news where a lot of the countries involved were in or implicated quite severely in the coronavirus crisis are coming out on the other end. We're starting to see more countries are coming down the other side of the curve. So now it's not just Italy and Spain that are coming down the other side. Now we've got, frankly, Romania's coming down the other side. France is starting to come down the other side of the peak. The Netherlands, despite the fact that it took a very strange approach when it came to the uh, dealing with this, is also coming down the other side. So now it's looking like more and more countries are starting to see some results from their lockdowns and their initiatives from everything going on. That's very good news. But obviously in France now, we're going to have a another situation where tonight, uh, Le President Emmanuel Macron will be um, giving a speech on national television around 8pm, 7pm, I believe, where he's going to say, where he's likely to announce an incre- uh, a, uh, I've forgotten the word in English, but the plongement of the lockdown. So we're going to see a likely lockdown extension until the 15th. Now, on this question list that I have today, I've got two, well, I've got three big ones that people ask. So firstly, people ask me, are Boris Johnson and the UK overall doing a good job dealing with the coronavirus crisis? I got another question that I've been asked a couple of times on Al Jazeera recently, whether the EU is doing a good job short term, long term whether they are doing what they should be doing to protect their citizens from coronavirus, people like you and me. And another one that popped up yesterday and I find quite interesting is why exactly do so many people fetishize World War II? Now, I'm going to start with the Boris Johnson UK question first, segueing to the EU one. Uh, If you guys have any questions, drop them in the comments below send them to me by dms otherwise whatever just if you have any question on any topic that you're interested in yourself and that you want me to approach with my expertise hit me up with it now is boris johnson doing a good job i think under the circumstances everybody is doing a pretty good job considering what's been going on nobody saw this coming anybody who predict who says that he predicted that there was going to be a pandemic exactly right now right here is lying for their teeth. They are lying to you. They think you're stupid. Ignore them. Nobody saw this coming. So considering the circumstances, most of the states in the world are doing what they can with the complete lack of information they had and the complete lack of warning that they had coming. Now, whether I think that the problem in the UK and Boris Johnson's response particularly are, is that the... So we have to view this from a view of Brexit. And I know that everybody's bored of it. I'm bored out of my mind. I spent four years of my life dealing with that mess. And honestly, people need to understand that the Brexit process, as in the populist situation that took place in Italy and Spain, they were primarily attacking government institutions and institutions overall. So you saw a decrease in belief in the in the institutions that protect societies, in the value of experts and the value of what these experts have to say. Now, the problem with that is that that went on for four years. 
And until very recently, even we even had discussions, and I was seeing this on Twitter and social media everywhere, and even in news everywhere. There were a lot of people who were saying, "Well, the experts have lied to us about X, Y, Z. Why should we believe them about coronavirus? Why should we believe them about what's happening now? Why should we believe them when they we've been told that these experts and these institutions have been lying to us for X amount of years and all of this time?" And the big problem with that mentality and the behavior of populists in the last let's say, five, six years, is that they have directly undermined every state's ability to actually react to crises like this, because when they need to react and need the public to actually believe in them, well, what's going to happen is that the public isn't going to believe in them and is actually going to believe that once they become the institution, that they, these institutions are lying for them as well. And I think that's been the primary weak spot in the British response to coronavirus, the Italian response, and the Spanish response. Now, once this crisis hit, the UK did mess about and did flip-flop between two responses. So initially they were going for the full herd immunity response and not really taking this as a serious matter where people needed to actively lock down, stay at home and just not move and not go into public. And that only essential workers should have been allowed to work in public. However, and this was replicated in the Netherlands, and this concerned me quite a bit because especially in Amsterdam, we are quite a dense city and it was quite a nervous thing for me, particularly as I almost, I may have had it. And, uh, okay, just a quick question. How is Boris Johnson right now? Boris Johnson is apparently doing absolutely fine. Who are you for? He's doing a, he's recovering in checkers, I believe now. And apparently he, I think he's resuming duty regarding his prime ministerial duties. And I think that Dominic Raab was told to step down and go back to being foreign minister and confusing himself about where France is located. But Boris Johnson's okay. Boris Johnson's doing fine and he recovered very well. I think he even did a press conference yesterday, so you could probably find that. However, back to the topic of how the UK is doing. The Once the crisis hit, there was a big issue regarding the way in which the... Uh, the UK supplies and the UK's infrastructure was working. So we need to take into consideration the NHS is cripplingly underfunded. They don't have enough staff. They don't have enough equipment in general for normal flu season. They don't have enough of anything to actually deal with the crises that come normally every year, such as the flu crisis and the issues around this. Now, once you have something that becomes an epidemic and supersedes that and becomes a pandemic, and it's just you, you can't physically deal with that and if you keep underfunding medical services, which I'll get back to how this is going to change the EU in the next couple of years next, you can't physically, you, you can't fight a pandemic of this level. You can't find a virus that kills indiscriminately, that cripples swathes of human beings. You can't deal with a, a crisis of this level when you don't have enough ICU beds, enough nurses and enough equipment in general. I mean, they had to start bringing old NHS nurses out of retirement, which tells you everything you need to know about the UK's response. And on top of this, we didn't have the fiascos with the EU's procurement of PPE and ventilators. And that was possibly the moment when a lot of people realized that the UK was in a very bad place. And I mentioned on the uh, during my interview on Al Jazeera the other night that this is definitely related to Brexit in hindsight and that this is a direct effect of Brexit distancing the UK from the EU and forcing the UK to start relying more on its 
Anglophonic allies. So, for example, the US was one of the UK's first port of calls. Unfortunately, the UK is currently running wild like a cowboy and just hijacking shipments of equipment that are intended for countries like France, the UK, Italy, Germany. And it's, it's starting to hammer home a bit more how poor of an idea Brexit was in the first place. Now, aside from that, I think, again, I want to reiterate that states all over the world are doing the best they can with the information that they had. We are, and this is a very morbid way to say this, but we are very lucky that the uh, Chinese state was dealing with this two, almost two months before we even started thinking about dealing with it. Like, we learned a lot from them. We also learned a lot from the Italian response and the way the Italians were hammered and dealing with this themselves. And this is, it's important that you have this example ahead of you because then you can actually deal with the crisis on hand rather than muddling through and trying to figure out a random response. And in France, at least, we are definitely putting down the fact that we were able to lock this down and deal with this quite effectively based on the fact that we were able to observe the Italian crisis and learn from that in the first place. Now, on to the next question, because it segues nicely. Is the EU doing a good job of protecting the citizens from the coronavirus? I mean, I think that the EU is doing a very, very a damn good job considering the circumstances and the way in which the EU actually is built and functions. Now, I've been hammering this home quite a while now, but you need to bear in mind that the EU is a vehicle for cooperation between 27 different countries that all have different political cultures, national cultures, and cultures when it comes to health and safety and the lives that these people live. And this is going to impact the way that the EU is able to function in these times of crisis, especially considering the fact that uh, health is not a competence of the Euro at the European level, but at national level. And that the varied characteristics of each country is going to impact the way that they're going to react to the crisis, deal with the crisis, suffer the crisis, and then hope for the EU to actually help them. Now, the at first, everybody criticizes the EU and the member states because they want, they want showing full solidarity with one another, which is entirely understandable because we were all fighting against a, a virus that people didn't understand at all. People didn't understand how it was going to work. They didn't understand how much they would be impacted. They didn't understand how this would spread. They didn't understand how what was happening in Italy would impact their countries. And the Italian situation, again, people say nobody was working with the Italians. No one was supporting the Italians. And the in some ways, this was true. The member states wanted to shore up their own defences to make sure they were as prepared as they could be before coming to the aid of another member state which, if we think about this in purely realist terms, this does make sense because how can you help another member state in order to protect yourself if you haven't done the basic work to protect yourself in the first place? So states like France, for example, did the preliminary work to prepare themselves, same with, with Austria, same with Germany. And then once they had set up themselves to be relatively well defended and given themselves a launching path to actually fight this once it hits their country they then moved on to helping the italians and then their fellow member states overall now i don't believe i think apart from austria no single member states put up 
border, uh, border restrictions of Italy in the early stages. I think France, they were, we were talking about this quite heavily in the news, and I know a number of politicians were talking about shutting it down, but I, the French government decided that it was just not in the spirit of European cooperation and that we couldn't just lock down the frontiers and lock down Schengen, because at that point anyway, even if we had chosen to, coronavirus had already gotten into the general population of countries such as France and other places. And I think even in Austria, they apparently had ski resorts that were locking down these, these, uh, they were hiding more than certain cases of coronavirus that were taking place in their resorts because they didn't want to be shut down by the Austrian government. And on top of this, you then have the uh, the evolution of a debate that's been going on for half a decade now, at least, regarding the corona bonds and how to best finance this fight at the European level and how best to actually support European businesses, governments and individuals in actually coping with this crisis. Now, this is still ongoing. So this whole issue on corona bonds and euro bonds we're still going to have the big fight that's going to be coming on. I think there's a meeting of the finance ministers that has taken place on Wednesday. And this is when they're going to continue the arguments for and against this. The Netherlands, so um, everybody's favorite finance minister, Hoekstra, has now decided that he's absolutely not going to budge on the coronavirus, corona bonds issue, which is going to cause even more fights with the Italians and the French, more than he already has. But we're going to see how that develops and whether the... Um, member states are able to give any compromises to help ease this and sort of oil the, the gears and maybe make a movement towards this. However, the the big thing is that right now there's a number of initiatives that are going through the um, European Central Bank and the European Monetary Fund and all of these organizations and and the European Stability Mechanism. They, they've got a number of programs going that are going to start pumping money into the European economy, that are going to start pumping money into all of the member states and onto all the companies that need the support to actually get through this and to prevent the worst of a financial crash and of, or a financial recession. As the IMF already said that there is going to be a recession, it's going to be a pretty bad one. Now, preliminarily, there is 500 billion euros being pumped into the European economy that is going to help protect businesses and help the member states actually deal with this. And right now, as far as I'm aware, the uh, French organizations and the French government are pushing very hard for an additional stability mechanism to come behind that, which is going to be an additional 500 billion euros. And that's going to help really to set a system where people are going to be able to resist the crash, resist the financial implications of this situation and actually fight against this. However, again, a lot of people are asking, is this going to be effective? Is this going to work? Is this going to be what the European Union and the member states, such as Italy, such as Greece, actually need to be able to actually deal with this crisis and actually come out of this on the other end with a fighting chance? The simple question and the simple, the simple answer to this, actually, is just that nobody knows. People can make all the predictions they want. People can make all of the um, acclamations they want. Nobody knows. What we need to be doing is paying attention to how the member states are actually dealing with this and actually arguing for this stability mechanism, for the support, and what they're actually going to do with it. So in France, for example, we're looking at a... Um, 
a speech in the coming days where uh, President Macron will be stating his plans for the future. We're hearing lots of discussion on circular economies in the Netherlands as the potential solution to get the Netherlands out of this funk economically. In France, we're going to see what happens. Germany has been investigating some kind of way of reigniting a stagnating economic engine, particularly with the fact that it was already courting recession for the last year. And we're going to see how that happens. And then, of course, we're going to have to wait and see what happens during the Brexit negotiations. Is there going to be an extension to the Brexit negotiations? I hope so. I don't think so. But we're going to have to pray, I think, at this point. Because if there is a no-deal Brexit on the 1st of January next year, and without an extension, this is very likely, then that's going to just take a hammer to the European economy and it's going to do a lot of damage to everybody. Now, the last question that someone asked me, or the last question I want to answer during this video, because I don't want to make these too long, it's 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 barely 11.30 in the morning, I don't want to bore you guys too much of my politics. Why exactly do so many people fetishize World War II? Now, I have one opinion on this topic that I'll bring in later on, but the... There's something, particularly in the UK, where a lot of people tend to have a very, very bizarre education when it comes to World War II, and a lot of people have a very weird position regarding World War II, particularly as pretty much nobody alive today actually lived through World War II as a late teenager or a cogent adult. I mean, you've got a lot of people who... So to put it into perspective, I I went through, I may be French, but my entirety of my schooling was in the British system in a, quite frankly, terrible school in South London. But even then, we had to follow the national curriculum and we didn't explore World War II properly. So by that, what I mean is that we had cliff, we basically had a cliff notes regarding the uh, World War II. So we, I think we spent maybe one period of a double period lesson going over World War II. And what it basically boiled down to was England faced down Nazi Germany alone. Uh, when every other country fell apart, the UK was the only country that was standing. Um, the UK could have basically handled World War II, even if the Americans hadn't turned up. God knows how, but that was what we were taught. And even amongst the more politically minded, more historically minded students that I was in school with, they bought this hook, line and sinker. And most of the time after that one class in year seven, so when we were about 11, 12 years old, I think in some cases, it basically turned into some kind of rampant British nationalism, you know, Britain's the best, blah, 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 like uh, God save the Queen, all that nonsense. And obviously being French, I took... I took it in the neck with all the, you know, white flag jokes and all this nonsense. And and yes, Anya, it does explain a lot. I cannot even begin to explain how how many times I tried to point this out during this during my the Brexit referendum. And yes, the film Battle of Britain has a lot to answer for as well. But I, that's an entirely different question. That's an entirely different discussion. However, not only that, but if you see the way the media portrays lots of political circumstances, particularly Brexit, now, 
really focus on that one point because this is what everybody is has fresh in their minds. Particularly regarding Brexit, it was in the lead up to the referendum and uh, during the referendum campaign, a lot of people were doing a lot of spreading of rumors that you know Germany was the um, the emperor of the EU, you know, treating the EU as some sort of holy Roman empire. That was definitely not an empire, that was definitely not Roman and definitely not holy in any way at all. And a lot of people were making a lot of comparisons between the EU and Nazi Germany, or later on, as Jeremy Hunt did, the Soviet Union. There was a lot of wartime, warlike language being used that we needed to regain, well, that the UK needed to regain its sovereignty, needed to unshackle itself from its uh, Brussels overlord, that the EU was, that the UK was a vassal state, that the UK was being denigrated by European states, that the EU was damaging its interests. And as time went on, this became more and more aggressive. So I'm looking particularly at the way Boris Johnson comported himself during the referendum debate, the way uh, Michael Gove, the way that uh, Nigel Farage and UKIP behaved themselves, and just the way a lot of the uh, right-wing nationalistic newspapers were behaving, so particularly The Sun, The Telegraph, the, um, the Daily Express, even the more moderate versions of those newspapers, like The Sunday Telegraph or whatever it's called now, were doing similar things and they weren't actually able to actually present this in a manner that was either civilised or really positive in any way. And the, the effect of that is that you basically, like we saw, not only was World War II fetishized before this point, thanks to films and movies and blah, 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 and poor education, but the, you then had this remilitarization, remilitarization of the World War II slash Brexit mythology, where it became this whole point where, you know, this fabled bulldog blitz spirit that British people keep talking about and keep resurrecting every time there's an issue happening. These things, they, to me at least as a French citizen who grew up in the UK, they show that there's a significant disconnect between reality and this mythology that British people are, have built for themselves. I mean, the, they, the mythology is that the UK was alone and beat the Germans on their own while the French, you know, cowered in their bars and the Americans were, you know, making guns. But the, the reality is this wasn't the case. And I think that's a big part of it comes from the fact that the UK is the only country in mainland Europe that wasn't invaded or by Nazi Germany or impacted by a coup d'etat of some sort by fascist regimes. And a lot of people have criticized me for saying the, the idea that the British are, are only really like this because of the fact that they weren't invaded. But I genuinely believe that this is the case. And I mean, this may be a particular French point of view because a lot of my French colleagues in uh, various political parties and uh, a lot of contacts in France have agreed that, from their point of view, that there is maybe an anthropological reason, reasoning in the fact that 
Britain wasn't invaded by Nazi Germany and was relatively was only attacked by the Germans. For this fetishization is believed that the UK is this global powerhouse and that the UK managed to survive World War II on its own behavior. But of course, this then leads to the situation where the UK isn't actually capable of reflecting on its position properly, first of all, and as a consequence, able to actually react to what's happening in a cogent manner and actually defend its interests in an effective manner. So, for example, when this, um, this belief in British exceptionalism came to a head with reality and clashed with the reality of what was happening in Brussels. Well, the UK was UK media was incredulous. I mean, they didn't understand why Brussels wasn't giving it exactly what it wanted it to have, why the UK wasn't giving it exactly the terms that it wanted, why the UK wasn't bending over backwards to give it access to, why the EU wasn't giving bending over backwards to give it access to the single market, and why countries such as France and Germany weren't basically surrendering all reasonable negotiating positions because of the fact that the UK had such a situation. And actually, as Anya just pointed out, yes, the UK did have a fascist movement. They do tend to forget about it, and we also didn't really learn about that in school. I had to learn about that personally during my bachelor degree, actually, when I was doing a uh, my international relations bachelor at Oxford Brooks. I... Uh, that's when I learned about Oswald Mosley and all of these weird fascist movements in the UK. And, you know, I mean, I shouldn't have to wait until my degree to actually learn about the basics of, you know, English history if I grew up in England. It doesn't make sense. I mean, in France, you should see the level of education they have regarding historical matters to the point that even if I'm very, fairly well read and fairly well informed and educated in French history, I have friends who go, went through the French system and they school me every time. It's just you shouldn't go through schooling without understanding your own history. It doesn't make sense. And admittedly, it's one of the reasons why the UK is so ill-prepared for its, its independence from the EU. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to just put this here and maybe pick this up in the next morning chat. But I am very convinced that the UK isn't going to have the level of sovereignty it seems to believe it will, nor will it confer the powers that it believes it will confer on it. I mean, if anybody's, if anybody is at all familiar with the European Neighbourhood Project, I'm I'm fairly sure that the UK is going to find itself stuck in this project very very quickly, and they are not going to like it at all, and it's going to be a lot worse than EFTA or the EEA. But if people want to hear about that more next time, please comment, please send me a message, please just send me any 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 questions, any topics that you guys want covered. I'm happy to talk about these. I'm going to be doing these anyway because a lot of people seem to enjoy them. A lot of people are actually giving me really good feedback on this. So I'm just going to keep doing this and keep giving the people what they want as a good French Republican would. If you guys have any question about any politics, I'm even happy to talk about Romanian, American, Algerian politics. Just hit me up. This is what I enjoy doing. This is what I enjoy learning about and discussing with people. This is what I enjoy helping people to learn about. So please just send me a message if you want to talk about it. Don't be shy. Even just DM me on Twitter. Send me a private message on Facebook. Email me if you want. I'm happy to talk to, about politics with you guys. I'm happy to talk about the things that interest you as well as interest me. And alongside giving you guys the updates every couple of days, 
you, this is enjoyable. This is a nice way to spend my mornings. So, guys, I hope that you enjoyed today. I hope that you learned something. I hope that you got some good information. And I hope to see you guys in a couple of days. So, have a nice day, guys.